0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Mysteries on the BookSpeak Network. I'm Sherry Knowlton. I write the Alexa Williams suspense series of novels, Dead of Autumn, Dead of Summer, Dead of Spring, and Dead of Winter.
0: Hi, I'm Jane West. I write the Carlisle Crime Case series, Dying for Vengeance, Cleaned Out in Darkness, Darkness at First Light, How to Die in Fall, featuring Carlisle homicide detectives Christopher Snow and Aaron McCoy. My latest mystery, Things Strangled, was released last fall, and now I'm working on a historical fiction.
1: Sunbury Press publishes our mystery and suspense novels uh, through its mystery imprint called Milford House Press. Uh, Today, we're pleased to have a fellow Milford House Press author, Simon Landry, with us. We're going to chat with Simon about his new book, Chestnut Street, and his journey to becoming an author.
0: Simon Landry was born in Montreal in 1979. He was graduated from Laval University with a bachelor's degree in education in 2003. Since then, he has been teaching high school mathematics. An avid reader, Simon decided to plunge into creative writing in 2017 during his spare time. He currently lives with his wife and two children in Montreal. Chestnut Street is Simon's first published novel, but he also wrote an essay for the recently published Sunbury Press anthology, After the Pandemic, Visions of Life Post-COVID-19. Welcome to Milford Health Mystery, Simon. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, congratulations on your new book. Um, You know, writing a book and getting it published uh, is no small feat, Uh, so I think you're to be congratulated on that, as is any author. Um, To to get started today, um, let's start with an overview of your new book, Chestnut Street. Just tell us a little bit about the book, if you could.
2: Sure. So um, the basic outline of Chestnut Street is, you know, a story I've drawn from, you know, I wouldn't say personal experience as much as a personal fear as a teacher, as a high school teacher of, you know, what what would happen to my life if a student spread a false rumor about me. So it's always something that's been in the back of my mind ever since I started teaching and. I've always wanted to write a story about, you know, what would happen the downward spiral that that could happen to a teacher if somebody with, you know, bad intentions decided to, you know, mess with uh, his or her reputation. And um that's how it all started and I I decided to combine that with, you know, a love of the Philly of the city of Philadelphia. I I, I fell in love with Philly when my wife used to live there, she had to move to Philly for two years doing her uh, residency as a doctor, and I used to go there quite often. I even lived there uh, for a few months at a time, and I just fell in love with, you know, Philadelphia, the history of the city, just the neighborhoods, everything. So, you know, I I started gathering ideas, landmarks, and thoughts about, you know, a book I would eventually want to to, to write, and you know, time went on, and eventually. Two years ago, I finally had the time to start, you know, get into creative writing and just started putting ideas down on paper at last. And, you know, after a while, after getting a few ideas down on paper, you know, a story started emerging, and finally Chestnut Street was my my debut novel that I got published with uh, Sunbury Press last year.
0: Okay, so you mentioned that your book features a mathematics teacher – Sam Brighton, as you are, you know the main character. Um, does that reflect on uh, your own math teachings, or did you just use that as a jumping-off point to for your story?
2: I, I, yeah, I mean, I drew from what I knew, which was, you know, being a math teacher, and of course, Sam Brighton, the people in my family, my closest friend, you know, who read the book say, well, I, I feel like I'm reading a story about you, because I drew from what I know, and of course, the, okay. the, 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 the main character, people think, you know, I, I feel like I'm reading a story about you, and not a fictional man called Sam Brighton, but yeah, of course, I drew from what I know. So everything that happens to Sam is something that's, that that I would eventually fear. I'm, I'm not going to go into too much uh, too much into the details of the book because I don't want to sell any you know punchlines or, or, or plot lines. Right. But basically, right. The, the the man, the teacher, gets you know falsely accused of inappropriate behavior with one of his female students, and as a male teacher, it is something that's dreaded by most male teachers because it, it can and it has destroyed careers for teachers. Um, it doesn't take much nowadays for someone to start a rumor, you know, with social media and cell phones and everything. It, it's very simple for someone to just start a rumor and spread it around very quickly, and it can impact someone's life. And it has happened to me in some degree, a student starting to spread rumors about me just to get back at me because cool. he wasn't happy about a grade I gave him. And it quickly spiraled out, and so I drew from that experience and just, you know, kept building into it into the novel. Yeah.
1: Okay. Wow, that's uh, probably a little uncomfortable to live on tenterhooks like that when you're trying to do a good job teaching students, huh? Um, Going back to your point about Philadelphia, I I used to to live and work in Philadelphia, at least live there part-time, uh, and uh, work there for, well, I guess, nine years. Uh, and also the city is only a few hours away from where Jody and I both live here in south-central Pennsylvania. So you could say I've walked Chestnut Street many times. But Montreal is such an interesting city, too, uh, what tell us a little bit more about, you know, what drew you to Philadelphia, uh, in particular as a city. I mean, it sounds like you were spent time there, so you developed some familiarity. But w- what about the city drew you to that as a setting for your novel?
2: That's a pretty good question. I would say that the history of Philly, you know, going back to the, you know, to the Declaration of Independence and, you know, the, the the first years of the state of Pennsylvania, the city of Philadelphia. Philly has such a rich history. And I remember when I was there, while my wife, were, my wife was working, pardon me, I couldn't, I couldn't work. I didn't have a work visa. So I just, you know, visited uh. my wife. While she had to work all day, I just had my days to myself. And, and, and I remember just spending my days walking around, Philly and just, you know, reading plaques on walls and visiting museums and just, you know, getting a coffee and, and talking to people in a coffee shop and just learning as much as I could about the city. And Philly's history is so rich and so diverse that it just, it, it, it was fascinating to me. And of course, people would argue, you know, Montreal is a pretty rich history also, you know, and, and, and they're right, but being a citizen of Montreal, there, there's, there's no, uh, I don't know how to say it. it. It isn't as fascinating to me because it's part of who I am and it's my everyday culture. And Whereas Philly was something entirely new to me and it's just something very fascinating. Just reading about you know the, the Declaration of Independence and then later on, uh, the, one, one of the part of the books was the Columbia Avenue riots you know, and, and the, the march for equality, and is, I am, I am a student of history, sorry, of history, and I just love learning about, you know, a city's past, and where, where people come from, and how people used to live, and how people live now, and, and Philly was just fascinating to me, so I just used to spend my days walking around town, and just, learning about stuff every single day, learning something new about the city. And, of course, we all know about, you know, the Liberty Bell and and Philly. It it goes together. Everybody knows about it. But then there's so much more underneath all that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I just remember walking around town and, and gathering ideas. And, you know, I had ideas about a book back in the colonial days and then ideas about a book during the riot days and present days. And I just wrote stuff down. And finally, I decided to settle on you know the, uh, the the riot days, you know the 60s, because it, it was easily tied to my current day story of you know Sam Brighton's the whereas colonial days would have been harder. So I I, 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 I used what I learned about those times in, in, in my book, and it's just it, it was very interesting to me to to learn about you know that part of the the the, the city's history that we we don't learn. In Montreal, we, we, if people in Montreal learn about, you know, the U.S. history, we learn about Philly, we learn about 1776, we learn about the Liberty bell as a symbol, but we don't know what happened in the city of Philly, per se, for the past 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. It is very rich, and it's so interesting to learn, and I, like I said, I remember walking around town. And then coming home and telling my wife, oh, I learned this today, I learned this today. And I discovered this part, of this neighborhood. And I remember telling my wife, I I discovered the Vietnamese neighborhood in in, in Philly. And she said, I've been living here for a year and a half. I didn't know they had a Vietnamese neighborhood because she had to work Uh all day. Whereas I have my days to myself just to walk around town and discover something new every single day. So that's why I used Philly in my story because I just fell in love with the city, with with everything it, it included.
0: Yeah, Hmm. makes sense. Well, and and it is rich in history. You know, uh, you know, actually, the center of our, um, you know, becoming a nation. So, uh, and then Chestnut Street. also it touches on some very current issues, like child sexual abuse and the power of the internet, social media, to destroy lives. And at heart, one of your most compelling things themes, I think, is, you know, how a person's life can change in an instant. Um, what drew you to these components of your novel? Is it, you know, one like that uh, would be on parallel with teenagers? Or you know, feel free to discuss any or one of these themes or uh, components of your book.
2: Yeah, well, like, like, like I said before, you know, with, what the gleaming from that part of the story is what, what I fear as a teacher on a day-to-day basis. I, I, I don't want to say I, I spend my days worrying about stuff like this, but it has happened to some degree to, to myself and to a lot of my, you know, male colleagues. It, it Unfortunately, it doesn't happen too often to female teachers. I don't know why, but it doesn't happen as much. Whereas male teachers, especially in high school where, you know, teenage girls learn to use their, I want to say sexuality in, in some degree to, to, you know, to their advantage where it, it is very easy for someone to use that and and hurt someone. And especially nowadays where, you know, like I said, social media and Internet, it is very easy for someone to, start something and then quickly lose control of, uh, of of what they started. And, you know, news spreads so fast nowadays that it's very easy for someone to just ruin somebody's reputation. And, and we saw it, and part of it I, I drew from, if you remember, the Me Too movement that happened a couple of years ago, and mm-hmm. which was entirely, you know, uh, it, it was fine that people started coming out, but then we discovered that some people, you know, called people out and it wasn't true, and they just used it to get revenge on somebody because they 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 had done something to them, and it wasn't true. But still, you know, nowadays you can you know falsely accuse someone of, especially a, a crime of sexual nature. It is very easy for someone to just accuse somebody over the internet on Facebook, say, okay, this man attacked me, or this female uh, sexually abused me, and then people don't verify, and just you you, you get your, your you get your you know. you you get your trial over the internet nowadays, you know, and and people decide before, you know, before you even get in front of a judge, people decide if you're guilty or not just from what what they've read online or what they've heard or what somebody told them. So it is something that we have to keep in mind always as teachers, especially as a male teacher. I have to keep in mind that, you know, everything I do could be, Interpret it in some way or another, and have to be very careful. And, and just you know, things as simple as just keeping my my classroom door open. If a student, if a student decides to stay after class, and just and, and a part of the story touches on this, where the main character Sam, when the, the female student that falsely accuses him decides to stay after class, and I, I do mention in the book that Sam decides, you know, the student wants to close the door, the classroom door, and Sam decides he gets angry and he. He yells at her, say, "You, you keep that door open because at least that it is, it is some sense of you know protection just to do. You know, my door is open, so he can't. I mean, I don't know how to say yeah. exactly. It, it is mm-hmm. something that I have yeah. to keep in mind that it, it could be easily seen another way. If you know a, a principal or a colleague walks by, sees me alone in a classroom with a female student, and the door is closed, it is very easy then to you know, misinterpret misinterpret things. So, you know, that, that is something that I drew on when I wrote the book. So I, I decided to combine, like I said before, you know, that part of my life and what I fear would happen to me if a student decided to, you know, to spread a false rumor about myself and my love of uh, Philly and its history. So I decided to combine everything. And it finally, you know, just writing stuff down, it's finally starting to gel together. And I, I finally got something that, that was workable. And when I figured out that everything could, you know, fit into, you know, all the pieces would start to fit together, and then that's when I decided, okay, I I, I got something I can go with it and and start writing a book, and finally it came out the way it did, and I'm, I'm very happy about it. Well, yeah, and, and I I agree
1: sometimes, with you. The, yeah, the pieces just start to fall together. Um, but, and you've talked a little bit about the the historical side of it i mean you know your book actually uh talks about not over only contemporary issues but goes back over 50 years and you know that's all intertwined and and snares your hero in quite a mess but um other than the you know the sort of your own experience in being in philly and uh, absorbing things and writing things down did did you have to do a lot of additional research um about the civil rights times and um you know how did you go about that if you if you did
2: Yeah, well, I I did actually do a lot of research when I I finally decided that I had enough pieces to, you know, start working on a a workable story. I did have a lot of research to do on, especially the the, the Columbia Avenue riots, you know, the the 1964, the race riots around North Philly. There was a lot there. I, I remember just seeing you know, plaques and and reading about, I think Columbia Avenue now is called, if I'm not mistaken, Cecil B. Moore Avenue. And then I had to learn who that man was and what his role in the entire um, 1964 riot era was. And then as, as soon as I started reading something about one of the main, you know, protag- I don't want to say protagonists, one of the main um I don't like want to say character. I'm sorry. I, yeah, like a leader. Sorry, I, I I couldn't find a word. And if I learned about B more, then I learned something else. And then I I started digging and digging and again. But I wanted my book to be. I didn't. I I I couldn't make it a hundred percent factual because I had to work with you know some dates and some leaders to to make the story work. So it it, it is. I would say. Not a hundred percent accurate, but most of it is. I drew from what I've learned and what I, and all the research I did. But I did have to tweak a few facts and a, a few characters are based on actual people that used to, you know, be parts of uh, be part of the riots in '64. And you know, we, I I don't name the mayor and I don't name the, the the deputy chief of police in the book per se. But you know, people who live in philly recognize that i'm talking about frank rizzo and you know and, yeah, and i, was gonna I say, that's River, right <laughs> i do I, I did have to do a lot of research to make sure that everything while not entirely factual was at least plausible and so i didn't use the the actual names of people from that time just as a precaution because i did have to mm-hmm. twist some of the facts in my book but you know People that lived in Philly who have family there, you know, they recognize some of the landmarks. They recognize some of the people in that story, mainly Mary Rizzo. I mean, I don't name him, but everybody who's been in Philly knows about him, and and, and they recognize him through the books. And, you know, some of the quotes I've done in the book are actual quotes that he's actually given, you know, in his time as either as a, a chief of police or, or as a mayor. So, I, I did have to do a lot of research, yes, so but again, I had to twist some some of the facts just to make it plausible, so, you know, people are, history buffs would probably look at that book and just read it and, and point out mistakes, but they're not actually mistakes, they're just modifications I've done just, to, just so the story could be tied together and, and be a little more plausible, per se,
0: yeah. Yeah, I, and I want to agree with your earlier point. I taught um, at the college level for more than 30 years, and I always left my office door open. But to go on, tell us a little about your journey about becoming an author. Um, did you always want to write, and did you have specific, specific challenges that you encountered while writing this first novel? I, I know I did when I was writing my first novel. Did Did you have any
2: challenges as a writer yeah i've had a lot actually like like pretty much i think every single author would 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 say that he's had some challenges i mean even the stephen king's and and so on would probably say i remember reading i think it was the it's it's the dome i've read during the the, my my last vacation i read the 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 stephen king novel the dome and at the end he mentions that he started writing that story 20 years earlier and just couldn't figure it out, then just left it on left it on the side for 20 years. So I, I figured if Stephen King has issues writing. I, I mean, that's kind of comforting for me because I've had a, a lot of uh, issues trying to figure this one out. But I, I've always been an avid reader. My father gave, transmitted his love of reading to me from an early age. Reading, you know, Robert Ludlums and Tom Clancy's. Uh, you know, I was one of the few 13-year-olds in my classroom reading thousand page novels in class, whereas, you know, most of my friends back then were just reading comic books. But, you know, I, I've always been an avid reader and I, every single night I, I can't go to bed without reading at least half an hour. Otherwise I don't, I, I don't have any, I, I can't get to sleep if I don't read before I go to bed. It just, it, it's a part of who I am. And, and for a long time, I thought that maybe I could write a story of my own. And I would say the main issue I've had over the years was just I would walk around either back when I was in Philly or, you know, before I would walk around and get an idea, get an inspiration about, oh, maybe I could write a story about this. And then trying to keep it in my head and eventually I would forget it. And what changed was when I was in Philly with my wife, It was the first time in my life I had a smartphone with me. I didn't have a cell phone before. But then in Philly, it was just cheaper to get a a cell phone than a landline. So I finally got a smartphone when my wife was in Philly and I used to visit her. And then I remember from that point on, whenever an, an idea would pop in my head or, you know, just visiting a landmark or just a street corner that would inspire me something, I would write it down on my phone and, you know, there's an thousand notebook apps you can download. And I remember having one on there and just starting to write things down and just, Oh, okay. I could, you know, I, Oh, there's, there, there were riots here in 1964. All right. Just writing this down, that, that might be interesting. Maybe uh, we can do something with it. And just writing stuff down finally gave me the opportunity after a while. I, I just wrote stuff down for, I would say a year and a half, just whatever would pop in my head, I would put down on paper or on my phone and eventually, I, I I didn't even notice it after a while, but then eventually I just pulled out the file and remember seeing like four or five pages of ideas uh, just put down over the past month or year. And then seeing how some of these ideas could get tied together. Okay, this one could work with this one and so on. And finally, I got to the point where I could, you know, figure out a story that I could put down on paper. And that was the main problem it used to have was what with the, I used to have ideas, but forgot them 24 hours later. And it's, oh, I had a great story idea last night in bed. And then the following morning, what was I thinking about? Just that uh, I forgot. Whereas now I get a notebook on on the side of my bed. And if, it's a, if, in, if two in the morning I get an idea, I just pop out the notebook, just write it down and, you know, put it back down and go back to sleep. But I, at least I know that if I want to come back to it a few days later, I still have it, whereas before I used to forget it. And then the other main challenge I remember facing was just the, the size of a book, how it is astonishing how easy it looks from a reader's standpoint,
1: mm-hmm.
2: in contrast to as an author's standpoint. I remember my first draft of Chestnut Street I wrote about almost two years ago had about fifteen thousand words, I think it it's it stood on like seventy pages or so i I remember just looking at that oh, my god, you're not even close and
0: <laughs> I remember
2: just reading that and say it, 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 it I can't believe I thought I could do this and you just put down eighty pages and like fifteen thousand words where a standard novel is a hundred thousand words okay, you need to write like ten of these if you want to ever get to something, but then lucky for me I just I showed it to my wife and she said, okay, and I sh- and I showed it to colleagues and they all pretty much said the same. They told me, okay, your story is good. You got something there, but you're going too fast. You're just, everything is happening and, and, and you don't describe anything around you. You just, I, I'm a straight to the point kind of guy and it showed in my first draft. You know, I didn't expand on, you know, describing the street corner or the, the, the shop where my main character used to go to buy something I just wrote down he went to the shop and he bought this period and then you know <laughs> and then and, and she mentioned to me well you need to describe you know how the how the cashier looks what the what the shop looks like what is it what is he looking for all right is he hesitating between these two items and describe him and then I remembered then looking back at novels I used to read and reading them again I said okay yeah I need to expand on a lot of details because that was the main problem I had was I didn't give enough details I just went straight to okay the guy walks in he buys this and he walks out and then he said no you need to do a chapter about walking into that store and buying something that it doesn't be it, it can't be in sentence it, it, it has to be a chapter so then I have to do like I think I were I wrote like 17 different drafts before I got one that was lengthy enough and gave enough details that I could finally present, you know, publishing houses and so on. But that was my biggest challenge, I think, was, you know, getting into the detail and being more uh, specific and not, going, you know, right to the point whereas now I'm mm-hmm. trying to work on my second novel with what well, I was supposed to work on it this summer but then the pandemic started so that that's not going to happen this summer but maybe next summer and now I know that I need to make it, you know, a, a lot longer but I think I'm probably going to keep the same process which is and I'm going to write a first step that's going to be really short and right to the point and then I'm going to start rewriting that one and just adding more and more and more details as I go along It might might be Mm -hmm. the most uh, efficient process, but it will be the one I'm I'm probably going to use, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you have to do what works for you.
1: Exactly, yeah. Well, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to mention, Simon, was how much I like the Chestnut Street cover. Uh, For listeners, you, you really should check out the, the cover of the book when you buy it. Um, and it's got Independence Hall in Philadelphia. There's a like a camera lens. Um, and then there's a running man that really conveys a sense of urgency and suspense. Um, and were you involved uh, to a great degree in the cover design, or did uh, the publisher yes, do that?
2: No, I was entirely involved, and the, the cover was designed outside from uh, Sunbury. didn't have any input on it. I, I, I started working on a cover back when I didn't get any positive answers from publishers, and uh, I was thinking about maybe self-publish, uh, self-publishing on Amazon or something like that, and I started working with a cover designer, uh, a website called 100designs.com, and I remember the, the guy I worked with, Matt. Was uh, was very was very good at, uh, at what he was doing, and I remember just telling him, "Okay, I want to see a Philly landmark, something that's very you know easy to identify. Someone, somebody that picks up the book, even somebody that doesn't live in Philly sees that book and knows that it's Philly. And I, I, of course, my right. my 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 mark was the U.S. Whereas Canadians probably don't know the Philly City Hall from sight, but most Americans do. And then I thought about a a bunch of landmarks that I could use, but the city hall was the one that was so easy to spot from 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 a history viewpoint. And then, of course, some of the main characters, some of the more main protagonists in the story, work in or around city hall, so I, I it, it does tie into the story. And then the camera lens goes. To the father of the main character, who was a, a journalist, and and the pictures he took was the the reason the whole story happens. So I wanted to you know give uh, give give some hints about that, and of course the running man is Sam, the main character, and you know how yeah. he has to live on the street and just you know run away from ho- all sorts of problems during during his adventure So I, I did have a lot to, to, to say about that cover and i did design it with matt the designer the graphic designer and then once sunbury gave me a, a positive answer on the book i did tell him okay i already got a cover design would you like to see it and i did uh, and i showed it to them and he said you know with it, this is perfect this is just everything we need for the book is on that cover so just, just they just used it as is and used it as a uh, for the publication as it was, so yeah, I, I did it all, all on my own with uh, graphic design. Yeah, it's really
0: great. Yeah, I really like the uh, the camera lens. That really is a smart touch. Um, but I maybe I noticed that because my dad was a photographer. But let's turn for a moment to your other recently published book, uh, work. Sure. It's an essay actually in a book called "On the Economic Front" in Sunbury Press's anthology. After the pandemic, visions of life post COVID-19. Of course, you're a math—you have a mathematics background, so you, we would expect you or you know to focus on the economy. But I was surprised at the um, at the amount of time that or you know, that you held China responsible, which I think is um, a salient point. And Canada's experience with the a- epidemic has been a- difficult. But much more controlled than the United States, it seems to me. Can you describe a bit about both the anthology and your specific piece? Uh,
2: yeah. Well, the anthology is just uh, well, it is an anthology. You know, I, the, the the word says it all. We we gathered a bunch of authors from Sunbury Press and asked them to uh, you know give their point of view on how they see life once the pandemic was would eventually be over because eventually it will have to be over and you know how life could or would change after the pandemic and you know somebody gathered a bunch of authors with all different backgrounds I mean there's there's some Mm -hmm. people in there from the economic background some political ones and and you know history teachers and so on and we all decided to you know, put our, our, our opinions down on paper of how we see life changing or not changing once the pandemic uh, is over. And uh, I, I was just very happy to be considered by Sunbury given that I don't have, you know, I have a math background, but as a teacher, have, I'm not an economist or a political specialist anything like that. But I, I was just happy that they gave me an opportunity, an opportunity just to give my opinion and, and, I remember getting that email. saying, okay, I think I have a lot to say, and I will try to be as concise as possible when I, when I write it down because it had to be short and straight to the point, which was, for once, uh, to my advantage. And so uh, <laughs> I, I, I I wrote something. I remember just writing something during nap time. It was at a few, you know, I get I get an hour and a half a day where my kids are asleep upstairs, and I, I get actually get some work done. And uh, so I remember just saying. Telling myself, okay, now at the time. You know what you want to say. Just fire up the computer and just get to work. And then I wrote something down and I just sent it to Lawrence, the uh, the manager at the Sunbury Press, and just you know keeping my fingers crossed. Hopefully, you, you won't think it's nonsense. And 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 finally, I was just happy to get an email and say you know, everything you say in your in your piece is, uh, is 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 good, and we're going to use it in the in the anthology. So I was just happy to get an opportunity to to speak my mind. And of course, as you say, um, well, you say Canada has been touched by the pandemic, but not as much as the U S which is true, but unfortunately Montreal is one of the cities in the world that's been the most affected because for
1: mm-hmm.
2: just for, 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 just pure uh, bad luck, if Travel? you would, our, our spring, our spring break is, uh, two weeks earlier than everybody else's, so we had a lot of people in Montreal travel abroad and then coming back infected before the pandemic was uh, declared wow. and we could start, you know, shutting things down. So we, uh, as a as a city, I think Montreal was maybe the second or third worst city in if you if you talk about statistics where per capita, I think we're one of the worst cities in the world right now still you know, w- with the likes of Belgium and Italy and so on. So Canada has been spared so far from the worst of it. But unfortunately, Montreal has been hit very, very hard. And then I remember, you know, just being home with the kids and and being so frustrated about, you know, why are we stuck in this situation where uh, we this could have been so easily avoided if the Chinese government had, acted differently. And, and this is what my piece touches on is the responsibility of the Chinese government. And, and I keep telling people when I talk about this, I, 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 keep, I keep telling people, we're talking about the Chinese government and not Chinese people because Chinese right. people, Chinese citizens have nothing to to, to, to be uh, blamed on. Yeah, They don't need to be blamed for anything. It's the Chinese government who decided to keep this virus under wraps for too long and then acted too late. And then we're stuck in this situation where there's a worldwide pandemic and the economies are all crashing everywhere. And, and, and I was very frustrated and, and thought, why do we keep putting up with, with that kind of, you know, rogue government just because most of our stuff is getting manufactured there. And that's why, I don't think we would tolerate another nation acting this way if we didn't depend, as a Western society, on China's production capabilities. Because most of the stuff we have now we buy is made in China, and and that's one of the part I, I'm touching on is where, as a society, do you want to keep always be looking for the best deals and save a few bucks, even if it means you're encouraging a rogue nation or do we want to turn ourselves inwards a little more and just encourage local economies, local businesses, even if it means that your T-shirt could cost 2 or $3 more, knowing that you're providing someone in your own country a job and a a, a way to feed his family. So I'm touching on the way that maybe globalization has has reached its peak and we might be tempted to start looking inward a lot more and not be dependent on, you know, emerging nations and and touching on the peace. And uh, people who are old enough will remember a time where, you know, America, America, especially, but, you know, most North America used to be able to produce everything they needed, uh, you know, domestically, you know, America did, did those cars and TVs and microwaves and, and clothes and mm-hmm. everything was done. And, you know, in house, if, if you want to say, and, and, you remember that what you were buying was helping some other city across your nation be alive. And, and I'm touching on the book how you people can remember the day where cities were built around the manufacturing plant, you know, like the, the big car manufacturing plants where the whole city was built around it. And right. everybody lived off that. That, that manufacturing plant, and now everything has been outsourced overseas just to save a few bucks, so, so things are cheaper to buy, and so investors can get more money for, for, for the, the, the money they invest, they, give, they get a better return on their investment, but then you're killing your local communities, you're killing your local economy, and is that something we want to maybe start looking into and maybe changing the way we're shopping now and encouraging things, more locally instead of just looking for the cheapest item possible maybe thinking about looking for somebody something that you want to buy that will encourage somebody else in your own country instead of just taking your money and shipping it you know overseas and that that's exactly. one of the main things i'm touching on uh, on this piece in the pandemic book i don't want to get too much into it because i want to encourage people to buy it because it's a, it's an amazing book and you get a bunch of opinions on medicine, politics, economy, uh, everything is touched in there and it, it is just a beautiful work. And I would encourage people to get a copy. And of course, I, the profits will go to, uh, I can't remember where they're going, but I know it's a non profit book. So everything, every dollar that is made yeah. on this book will be given back to, uh, I'm sorry, I, I forget. I don't think we've even settled on where that money will be going so far, but you know, it's a great way to contribute and it's a great read for everybody. So for everybody.
0: Okay, and I think well,
1: you make an excellent um, point. Yeah, that's an interesting mm-hmm. perspective. Um I encourage people to read the book too. I've I've read I think all the like one or two of the essays so so far. I'm still plugging away at it. Um I think we are out of time though. So um mm-hmm. thank you Simon for joining us. Uh, best of luck with your new debut novel Chestnut Street uh, and uh, you know your essay in this book about after the pandemic can you tell our readers where they can get your books and how to follow you on social media Uh,
2: of course Uh, social media I'm present on Facebook they can just look at uh, they can just do a search on Facebook and just write down Simon Landry books and they'll be directed right to my, my Facebook page that's the only social media I have because I'm not uh, an avid uh, social media user, but, you know, mm-hmm. you can find me on Facebook that way. And the book, uh, it, the book uh, Chestnut Street can be bought on uh, Amazon, of course, on the Sunbury Press website is the best way to get it. And might be the, uh, the best way to find it. Just check out the sunburypress.com website. But if, if you're an uh, Amazon Kindle user, you can find it on Amazon. I think Barnes & Noble has it also, and I think my, the readers in Canada can find it on uh, Indigo Chapters as well. And that's been, I think that's pretty much all the places I know that the book is sold for now. And same goes with the pandemic book. They're pretty much available you know, at great retailers, uh, pretty much everywhere, easy, easily found online if you just do, do a quick search.
0: And a, a reminder to all you readers and listeners out there, all our books are available on Sunbury Press's online bookstore, Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and other online retailers. And when any independent bookstore owner can also uh, order it for you too. Uh, a special thanks to all of you for listening to Milford House Mysteries. We really hope you enjoyed our program. It was very interesting uh, to talk to Simon Landry today and uh, we hope you'll take a look at his book, Chestnut Street. It sounds so intriguing. On our next program, Thursday, July 30th at 2.30 p.m., we'll be talking about talking to our return guest, Timothy J. Smith, who has been with us before. We'll talk about fire on the island.
1: In the meantime, you can follow us on social media. Um, I'm on the web at com. Plus, I'm
0: on Facebook and Twitter. And I'm on Facebook.com slash Carlisle Crime Cases by JM West and on the web at www.carlislecrimecases.com. All lowercase letters. So thank you again, Simon, for joining us. We really enjoyed this last half hour. (laughs) And until next time. Thanks, Simon.